This podcast is part of the Batman Universe Podcast Network, hosted by the BatmanUniverse.net. Check out everything related to Batman and the entire Bat family at the BatmanUniverse.net, including news and original content related to comics, movies, television, merchandise, video games, and more. Also, check out some of the other unique podcasts that TBU has to offer. Consider supporting this podcast by becoming a patron on Patreon. Even $1 can go a long way in supporting this content that you enjoy. Look for a link over at thebatmanuniverse.net to offer your support now. And now, on with the show. Gotham City, like any other large metropolis, abounds in girls of all shapes and sizes. Debutantes, nurses, stenographers, and librarians. Gotham City Library, Miss Gordon speaker. Lopez hair removal, this is Jose. Holy transformation. One minute, plain Barbara Gordon, librarian and Commissioner Gordon's daughter. And the next minute, something new has been added. Batgirl, modeled after her idol, Batman. Holy apparition! No, boy, wonder I'm Batgirl. You are no longer alone, Cape Crusader. It took me three years to track down the Jade Gato, and three more to figure out how to steal it. Funny, it only took me ten minutes to figure out how to snatch it back. No matter how you do it, crime doesn't pay girls. Episode 201 for January MMXXI. <laughs> Backroll the Oracle is brought to you by Waiting for Doom DC OCD podcast. And I'll tell you why specifically once we get to that part. 
Hello, Paul. Hello. I am Dr. Herfenstaffner. Come in, come in, please. Take a seat. Take a seat. What can I do for you today? I uh, just, I just, I'm, I can't sleep. I, I, I can't focus on anything. The only thing I can think about is like DC events. DC events, as in the comic books. DC events. Yes, yes, the comic book events. Ooh, interesting. Uh, are we we talking things like Crisis on Infinite Earths? Yeah, yeah, totally. That one, yeah. Uh, Infinite Crisis? Yeah, yeah, that one too. Oh, very, very. Invasion, maybe? Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, the, uh, the Genesis? Uh, not so much. No? Oh. Okay, well, I think it's really good if you talk about the things that are troubling you in your life. So maybe you should do a podcast about this obsession. What? What, what do you call this obsession? What do you think it is? I think you're a unique case. I've not seen anything like this before in my office. I'm going to suggest that you have what we call DCOCD. What? DCOCD? You are obsessive and compulsive about your DC events. I think you should talk it out, get it out of your system via a podcast. I will help you, my friend. We shall do a podcast together about your DCOCD. Oh, okay. When I won't even start? charge you for it. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> I don't think I can claim you on <laughs> benefits. <clears throat> yeah, it's good. <laughs> when shall we start? Um, I'll get back to you on that. I'll check my I'll check my timetable. <laughs> cool. Backworld the Oracle is also brought to you by MileHighComics.com, your new and collectible comic book store. Mile High Comics has an inventory of over 5 million comics from the gold, silver, bronze, and modern age, and over 100,000 trade paperbacks. If you're not into the vintage stock, Mile High Comics also has a subscription service called the New Issue Comics Express, offering a discounted price for comics ready to hit the shelves. So if you're looking for vintage back issues or a great modern subscription service, be sure to check out milehighcomics.com. Well, happy new year. We're in 2021 right now. And everyone is under the belief that it's going to be better than 2020. And so far, it seems like 2020 has just sort of spilled over into 2021. So I hold out hope that it it may be better, but it just feels like more of the same. But... Despite all the unrest that we are experiencing in the good U.S. of A. and, you know, COVID numbers being higher, it is nice that the vaccine is getting out there. And I know it, it might be difficult for some people to get it right now. I'm blessed working in healthcare temporarily that I was able to get the first round. And then my second round is coming up shortly. And I'm hoping that, yeah, it'll come out to people soon. And the inauguration is coming up and who knows what that specific day will look like, but at least we can perhaps hold on to some hope that the next four years may be brighter than than what we had encountered before. So yeah, let's just be optimistic, I guess we'll say. You know, 2021, we just started, and I know people want to get rid of the dumpster fire that is 2020, but we can't just like push off and be like, it's a new year because we're totally still in it, people. But 
the call for love and empathy and compassion is still out there. I'm definitely throwing that out there. I wanted to, in the beginning of this, just talk about the best that I've seen of 2020, sort of the best things that I've encountered that particular year. So however much of a dumpster fire that year was, I think that there were some great things to come out of it. And I'm going to specifically talk media, but... There are certainly other positive things that we could we could talk about. So just book, movie, video game, and TV show, what would I say would be the best that I have experienced in 2020? And I think all of them, with the exception of no, I feel like all of them maybe came out in 2020, with the exception of one, I think the book. So these are all my opinion of the best of categories. Of course, you may disagree with with some of these. I know with one in particular, <laughs> I think people may disagree, but here's my best of 2020. So the best book that I read in 2020. So I think this is the only exception was Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson. And I highly recommend that to anyone, really. I think that gives people a good idea of what our criminal justice system and prison systems look like and that both need some heavy reform and and just history of abuse and misuse of justice. And also, I think that discrepancies and disparities between white people and people of color and sort of the three strike system and different criminal acts that are being weighed differently depending on race. So just getting to to learn more about that and Brian Stevenson himself and, and just being a great man and doing what he's doing and fighting that fight and, and proving that you can be one person and the odds can be stacked against you and, and the stuff that's going on, but you can potentially, you know, work and push back against that, however hard it may be. So I think it, it's it's a good lesson and gives us hope as well. So that's my best book that I read in 2020. The best movie that I watched in 2020, hands down, and that came out in 2020, though I think in France it came out in 2019, but in U.S. it came out in 2020, was Portrait of a Lady on Fire. I actually just rewatched it. I guess it would be like maybe my third or fourth time last night just to like refresh. And whew, man, just such a beautiful film. And I've been waiting on Harold and Donovan for years to do something with it on questions don't even ask them because they don't have answers and i'm just sick of waiting i might as well just do a commentary on my own and put it on this this podcast because i can certainly talk about it at length i recommend it to anybody my top video game this is probably the one that'll cause controversy is so game of the year right is of course you can see behind me the two pop pigs it's last of us part two however heartbreaking, heart aching, and troubling it was, forcing me to do things that I did not want to do. Uh, it creates, I think, conversation. I mean, I had a six-hour conversation with Harold. It, I think, depicts the world. <laughs> there was an article that said, you know, that this, this is, this game 
is problematic because it shows everything as, as being very gray and we need more black and white films. I'm like, you can't have black and white films. Yes, some things in life are very black and white, but the world is so muddied and gray. And so I think it really captures that. And empathy. I think it, it, I was going to say forces you, but really, I mean, if you're experiencing the game well, and I think as the creators intended it, you do, you start to feel empathy towards this character that you should also maybe hate because of what she does at the beginning. But on the other side, you're watching Ellie do these terrible things as well. So it's, it's really thought provoking and heartbreaking as well. But that's certainly my game of the year. The TV show of the year, this one was harder just because I feel like I've watched more TV this year than I normally would have. But on Netflix, I think I'm going to pick Queen's Gambit. I thought that was a great show. Not only the lead actress, Anya Taylor-Joy, I think is her name. Anya Joy Taylor. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Anyways, uh, she's a great actress. I I think it it looks into and portrays uh, a particular facet or form of mental illness, and it portrays it well and respectfully. And I think mental illness in general – isn't portrayed often and if it is it's it's probably going to be the killer and yet law and order or something like that so just in investigating and looking into that and gaining a better understanding and, and grasping it more and yeah it was interesting i mean obviously the time period i think was interesting i do like time pieces and having a, a female lead was great in a boy's world with with chess and and all of that so i highly recommend queen's gambit and i think that's it my best of 2020 so all of those i think i would recommend all of them but of course lou too i would there's a caveat with that one as i talked about in that podcast that it just depends on the particular person and that i would just be you know wary about whom I recommend it to. It's interesting because my nephew, I guess he got The Last of Us Part 1 remastered and then The Last of Us Part 2. And so he was talking to me as he was going through. And I feel like he really sped through everything really quickly. And he was just keeping me apprised of what parts he was at and things like that. And and I, at one point, I did tell him, you know, take some space after he finished the first one and, and everything. And he's just going through so quickly. And I just feel like that's especially, well, both parts, but I think the second part and really you can't rush through it. I think, cause it'd be forcing, you're like, how can you fast forward through those emotions? I think that the game really compels you to feel. I, I don't know that that's the best. I mean, perhaps it's the best if you want to keep yourself emotionally well and not go through those emotions but for me I I really and that's why because I could have totally marathoned that game I mean there were some nights if you remember my Lou 2 diaries that I was up late but I was purposefully pausing as well and I could have marathoned but I think it was good for me to to pause and and ponder what I had undergone in in the last the playthrough that I just completed so so there you go Well, now we're at uh, the Find Your Joy segment, and it does somewhat connect to the best of 2020 because there was a contender. There's a contender, and I think this is true also with people in the the real world that are not on my podcast. Another contender for Game of the Year that I do want to talk about, but 
Shag's mac and cheese, a comfort and joy. What's been giving me joy in these particular times? I have been, I continue to read and I've, I've, oh, something that has been giving me joy is that I have gotten two interlibrary loans. So I should be down to five. I'm down to five of my Rory Gilmore's reading list left of that 10 year journey. So that is giving me joy. I just have to, you know, wait for the books to come in if they can find them. And then of course you pay $3. So it's an expensive journey. And I really liked the Netflix show that just came out, Lupin. And it is, it's not Lupin the Third, but it's uh, about, it's live action. It's in French, though you can have it dubbed if you want to. But I, I don't really, the only way I would like that is if it were animated. So live action, I don't need people's lips slapping out of time with what is being said. But it is about a man who models himself after Lupin, but very much in a, it's a revenge story to a certain extent, but he's trying to clear the name of his father, but he is also somewhat having to get (laughs) into revenge mode against one particular character. And I think there were only like five episodes. So this is part one and it ended on a cliffhanger. So I'm really excited about that. And well, excited about, I wasn't excited about the cliffhanger, but I'm excited about what the future will hold for this particular story. And I was pleasantly surprised to see a dark skinned black man as the lead character. I thought, yes, this is great. Cause I've been for the past year, at least I've been really interested in learning more about colorism and also starting to critique it more in comics and other media and seeing where it pops up. And so I was thinking after this happened, like what happened? What if I were to each time I read a comic or something, critique it and say, oh, there's a such and such. And I thought, no, that's actually probably not a good idea. So I think maybe what I'll do is if there's a, because this doesn't happen often, I'll have to, I'll have to consider this, whether this is like a bad idea or not, but to at least applaud, like, thank you for showing someone who does have a darker complexion than not. Cause it seems like lighter characters are in the forefront more often in comics and even characters like storm have been lightened if that's the correct term. So there are some weird things happening in comics and I don't know if this is a recent thing or just a continuation, but I actually watched an interesting video with princess weeks on YouTube where she talked about colorism and comic characters. And she also critiqued the new mutants film because one of the characters should have been a darker skinned, was he from Brazil? And he wasn't, they, they got a lighter skinned actor. And then she was showing lots of, uh, yeah, things with Storm and other people and like a question of like, you kind of look at it and you wonder what, what ethnicity or race are you? So I'm kind of, yeah, I'm kind of interested in this because I've been wondering about it for a little bit, especially with Helena Bertinelli of the Batgirl and the Birds of Prey run. I wondered often. I just thought maybe she had a tan, but then it was, I remember the Benson sisters verified that, yeah, she is in fact black. And so I wondered, did you not want to take the the leap and make her a darker skin tone? So I do wonder about that. Not to say that we don't have lighter skinned black people, but I feel like comic I don't know if it's art or, artists or editors lean towards the lighter 
And I have some thoughts as to why, but I need to do some more investigation. So all that to say that I am looking forward to seeing a better representation of the wide array of of skin tones that we can have and not just with the lighter. So when I saw Lupin, I was super excited and that they, you know, just didn't go with like a lighter skinned actor. So, so all that, there you go. And so that's been giving me joy. And then since we last spoke, I have played three games. I played Hellblade Senua's Sacrifice, which is not the most uplifting, but another great example of media exploring some facet of mental illness, in this case, psychosis, and being really respectful about it. So that was a worthwhile game. There's that word that I like to use, worthwhile game for sure. I got a little annoyed at it, if only because of the game mechanics. They don't tell you much about how to do things. The voices in the head tell you when to do things, but it's not like X or whatever. So it took me, there were a couple instances that I did not learn that I could do something until way later on in the game and it annoyed me. The other thing is that there's some issue with her. I don't want to spoil in case you decide to play this game that's four years old. And if you die too many times, the game erases your file and you have to start over and things like that make me super nervous. I don't need that to happen to me. Luckily, I did not die enough times for that to happen, but I I would have been upset. And I also played Thomas Was Alone, which was a delight. I, aw, it's so cute. Claire, the rotund blue square that can float she's the only one is and well yeah it can well float i guess we'll just go with that is is my favorite and such a great and inventive story and and fun little puzzler and then the other game i played which could be a contender for game of the year the lutu one out is ghost of tsushima Ooh, so i've heard so many good things about this i was really interested i think once the first story trailer or teaser popped up just because Japan is an interest for me and playing a game set in Japan, feudal Japan, seemed really interesting. And I I really enjoyed it. The story is really interesting and I I think really the the proof is that that game took me seven days, I think to beat it because I was just I was sitting there not really marathoning it but I I was just so intrigued that I wanted to learn you know what happened after that I remember the the first day that I had the disc and this is from Gamefly by the way the first day I had the the disc, I was super tired, but I really wanted to start this game. And so I thought, you know what, I'll just go to bed now. It was eight and I'll wake up at three and I'll start the game and then I can go to the gym at 4.30. And I did. And it was, yeah, super powerful. The It's interesting because the game, ooh, across, I wouldn't say across the board, but for several characters, there was almost a lack of redemption. And I would need to seek out and I think explore more with with the culture and perhaps as someone who knows about that culture more. But there is just like a lack of forgiveness, a lack of redemption as in like clearing your name or, or making up for what had happened in the past, which is interesting. Like no matter what you do, you can fight against this, but you'll still have this tarnish to your name, which I I found really interesting. Learning more about the culture I thought was 
also interesting and certain aspects of it, like what happens to uh, Jin and uh, it's hard for me because I don't want to spoil anything, but what happens to him after he does this one thing to basically save everyone was really interesting. And, and I want to explore that more and better understand that. And then I guess I will spoil. So I'll say spoilers now for Ghost of Tsushima if you want to play it. But because I do want to say something about the end. But but Jin poisons a whole camp of Mongols, even though his uncle told him not to. And then he sort of he's kicked out basically of being a uh, samurai or like he's now on the run. And the shogun basically did did not not approve of that and so he's now a traitor and so i'm trying to understand about that and why it would go that far i mean i understand we're talking like it it was dishonorable to kill the mongols that way but i just wonder why he would be so heavily disciplined that he'd be locked up uh potentially disowned by his uncle lose the family title all that stuff so i thought that's something that i need to explore a bit more um, in regards to that, because in killing that Mongol camp or destroying that camp, they were able to take back a big settlement point and really turn the tide of the war. So it's just interesting of if this is a dishonorable act, look at what you had done to save people. So I guess that's the ends and the means sort of situation. But in the end, you are the very end. You have to go up against your uncle. And so your uncle... Your uncle offers, well, you have to die, basically. (laughs) You have to die. Your family name will be destroyed, as in, like, erased from history. And you're going to duel it out with your uncle. So you duel it out with your uncle. You're playing as the ghost, so of course you're going to win. And then you have the chance to either spare the uncle and be hunted for the rest of your life or kill the uncle because he asks for it. He asks for that final manner of respect and you'll also be on the run for the rest of your life. But in killing your uncle, you'll also destroy two family names, really. So this, you had a choice. You had a choice. And so it's not quite narrative dissonance, but I felt like I was forced to do this. So I felt like it was quasi-narrative dissonance, but I ended up killing my uncle and it was mainly because of this respect that he said if you would you know this one thing do this one thing for me this one respectful thing for me and i thought how can i deny him this thing i don't want to kill him i want him to live on i want his his name to live on but he's asking for respect and and after he feels like i've disrespected him so much i need to do it so that was it was hard but this uh game gave me much to ponder and think about so I highly recommend it. I did not do all the side missions. I did the main ones with like the monk and Lady Misako and uh, Lord Shimura, I think his name is. No, Shimura is my uncle. I can't remember what the um, the other teacher is called. So I did those major ones and then here or there, I might have done something. So I did not do the full, like the full, full experience, but I felt like it was pretty full and I was I'm ready for the next game, which happens to be Final Fantasy VII Remake, which Donovan is super psyched about. So. so that one is a close game of the year second. And I think many people might argue that that's game of the year, period. So there you go. Well, that's all I have, I think, for this beginning part. So the image of the podcast is a bit misleading. So I did sort of the thing that annoys me on comic covers where you show something and then that thing doesn't actually happen. But the image that I showed for this part is 
our world's at war and I am going to talk about it, but it's not, I'm not reviewing anything I would say, but I do talk about it most compared to the other things that I will do. So it's kind of a quickie, but I'll talk about it more and then I'll tell you where you can go to actually learn more about our world worlds at war. I just didn't think that it was as worthwhile. I even asked Michael Bailey and he's like, I don't nah, you don't really think that. And then even reading through it with Barbara, I mean, the Nightwing title potentially would have been like, I could have sat down and, and discussed the whole thing, but I have to make some judgment calls here. So we'll start with these quickies here. And it's interesting because on my Excel list, it just said Harley Quinn number 10. But then that story didn't end and it went on to 11 and 12. And I will say that even though I'm not going to fully review it, that they were fun stories. So I do recommend them. And it actually brings in like the whole crew because you have Nightwing, you have Robin, you have Cassandra. And then uh, Barbara to a small, she's probably the smallest extent, though significant to a certain point. So if you're, if you like Harley Quinn and want a fun story, I would say look at uh, Harley Quinn 10, 11, and 12. But again, I've just decided that it's not as much worth my time. And I think I'm just going to spend, expend the majority of my emotional feelings on the second half of this episode, which is uh, the three jokers. So Harley Quinn number 10 is brilliant mistake. Harley Quinn 11 is the girl is bats and Harley Quinn 12 is a date which will live in infamy. And they all have, I do believe, yep, they all have the same credits. Writer Carl Kiesel, penciler Terry Dodson, inker Rachel Dodson. So of course it's beautiful. And colorist Alex Sinclair. Uh, Number 10, September 2001 cover date, 11, October 2001, and November 2001 for 12. So I will give the the publisher recap that I got from Comixology and then what Babs is doing in there. That's how the quickies go. Reintroducing, this is number 10, reintroducing the original Batgirl. But how can that be possible when Barbara Gordon, the original Batgirl, is wheelchair bound? She'd certainly like to know. And so would Nightwing, Robin, and a certain new hero out there named Named Batgirl. Meanwhile, Harley is still in the clutches of Killer Croc. Bo and Surly of the Stooges have a tender defining moment, and the Quinettes get a new member. Matches Malone. Remember how he died but didn't die, but actually did die? But he's not dead. So here, Babs in a wheelchair with handles, so there was a mistake there. I'm, I'm sorry, Dotsons. Here's that Batgirl took down Croc and assumes it was Cass, but it wasn't and plans on communicating with Batman about this. Harley Bat, as I'll call her, encounters both Robin and Batgirl and gives them a run for their money, even knowing Cassandra's name. So those are some interesting things. You should see these fight scenes, how she holds her own, even when Nightwing gets in there. So if you ever thought that Harley was incapable, you should probably read this or perhaps they give her too much power. I'm not sure. I'm not a Harley connoisseur. The fact that she knows Cassandra's Kane, Cassandra Kane's name, she just calls her Cassandra, of course. But the fact that she knows it is really intriguing. I have questions like how would she ever know that? Uh, because to my knowledge, Barbara only calls Cass Cass in the privacy of the clock tower. So, yikes. If I, th- I feel like this is a continent, like a slip up that that should not be. But if Harley has that knowledge, think about what other knowledge that she would have. So that's a bit scary. Okay, 11. 
guest starring Nightwing as a carjacker, which is funny because he does have to, Harley steals his bike and then he like throws someone out of a car and takes it. I did crack up at that. What could lead him to such a dastardly deed? Why Harley Quinn, of course, how will our hero or villain escape this one? Meanwhile, Oracle is determined to stop Harley once and for all, and she's not the only one. Nix and Buster are scheming against her. Matches Malone is about to strike, and let's not even talk about the Stooges. So Oracle reflects on her time as Batgirl. Of course, we get a The Killing Joke refresher since we always need one of those. There is a quick shipper moment with Dick before he goes off to help Robin and Batgirl who are still having trouble with Harley. Gosh, maybe they should be fired, Batman. Dick is angry, angry that someone would wear Babs' old costume, so he's defending her. The team reconvenes in the clock tower to figure out where Harley's hideout is, and Babs stresses down Dick for letting his emotions get in the way of catching her, but he says he couldn't stand Harley tainting her good name. So it's one of those things, right, where, of course, Babs is the one who's the level-headed one. It's totally like with Officer Down, right, that she needs to be that strong level-headed person who's who's also clear i mean she's probably she definitely is feeling everything that dick is feeling but she like knows mission first and then let's let's get together and then we can be angry which she does in, in the third part she has that but but i do appreciate nightwing standing up for her her good name and then finally, number 12, Harley's first year ends with a bang in this special exercise issue. It's games within games as Bo and Surly try to capture Harley. Bo and Carrie try to hook up at last. <laughs> Nix unleashes his plan against Harley. Buster's true colors are shown. Jack happy meets his destiny and it hurts. Allegiancy shift and Batman strikes. So the team finds the hideout where Batman already is because he was matches. And then Babs wishes more than anything to put on the costume once more so that Harley isn't the last one to have worn it, which I can totally see that. And and I think that, you know, she has this in a quiet moment. And I think that was definitely the way to handle it rather than in the midst of a mission going off like like Dick is. So I think that Babs is, is certainly treated respectfully and, and well written here. Okay. Another quickie, Nightwing number 60, which I'm going backwards in time a bit because I know, what was it, 62 was the tie-in to Joker last laugh so whatever so this is the threshold i even wrote in my notes before last laugh writer chuck dixon penciler trevor mccarthy inker john lowe colors gregory wright october 2001 is the cover date officer dick grayson finally receives his badge exciting now all he has to do is live through a full-on gunfight with trans belvin mobsters and a meeting with the secret society of cops so here bab sends a sends dick a cute i have weird notes on this a cute cartoon to congratulate him then talks with him as he prepares to go to amy his partner's house he is worried she might have feelings for him but babs is unconcerned and says just remember we were partners first after dinner babs makes fun of him since amy has a husband and children and she says with his instincts he'll make detective in no time so just a cute little tale and then my final quickie is Batman. Sorry. Whoo. Catwoman number 88. Subtitle TK. Writer Bronwyn Carlton. Never heard of that person. Penciler Carrie Nord. Inker Mark Lipka. Colorist Roberta Tews and Jameson. January 2001 is the cover date. When Catwoman accidentally finds herself in the middle of a firefight between the Gotham City Police Department, Commissioner Gordon, and the villain Banner, will she be able to escape the explosive fallout? And of course, keep in mind that she was the person that was first thought to have shot Jim 
during Officer Down. So Babs and her father are having dinner, and he explains that the mayor has asked for him to stop investigating Catwoman, which makes him angry and makes Babs ask all sorts of questions. And that is basically where she appears. Okay. So even though I call this reviews, I feel like it they're quickies. But I'll talk a bit about our worlds at war in case what I go over may interest you somewhat. So this was a comic book storyline published by DC Comics in the mid to in mid two thousand one. Uh, a crossover storyline that spans several different books, including. Uh, books starring Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman, The Flash, Green Lantern, and a number of supporting characters in books. Creators involved in the crossover included writers Jeff Loeb, Joe Casey, Mark Schultz, Joe Kelly, Phil Jimenez, and Peter David, and artists that included Mike Wieringo, Ed McGinnis, Doug, uh-oh, Manike, that's not how you pronounce it, Ron Garney, and Leonard Kirk. The crossover, which occurred mainly through monthly Superman titles, Wonder Woman, and a series of character-themed one-shot specials, dealt with the heroes of the DC Universe facing the threat of the cosmic force known as Imperiax, who attacked Earth... Sounds so familiar. Who attacked Earth for the purpose of using the planet as a staging ground for the hollowing of the entire universe. Thanks to the sacrifice of Strange Visitor and General Rock, Earth's forces managed to crack Empirix's armor, intending that Darkseid would subsequently use boom tube technology to transfer Empirix's energy back to the galaxies that he had destroyed. Mm-hmm. However, Brainiac 13 appeared on the battleground with War, War-, War World and absorbed the Empirix energies, vowing to use them to rule everything. In a desperate gambit, Superman dived into... Dived. I always wonder about that. Superman dived. <laughs> Into the heat of the sun, thus gaining a massive power boost that enhanced his abilities significantly. Rapidly realizing that War World could not be destroyed without releasing Imperiax and triggering another Big Bang, Superman and the Martian Manhunter formed a brief telepathic link with the remaining major combatants, including Darkseid. Who on earth would have him on your team? Lex Luthor, again, Steel and Wonder Woman, to explain their new plan. With Darkseid's powers weakened, they would have to use Tempest, empowered by the Faith and strength of the Amazons, focusing the energy through Steel's new Entropy Aegis armor, which was created from a burned-out Imperix probe, and with Lex Luthor activating a temporal displacement weapon. Superman would subsequently push War World through a temporal boom tube, sending both Imperix Primes and Brainiac's consciousness back 14 billion years. Million years to the Big Bang, destroying both villains through a combined effort. Destroying both villains. In his final moments, Imperix Prime realized in an ironic twist that the imperfection he had detected in the universe was himself. The planet Daxum was involved, tempor- temporarily stolen from its rightful orbit. Whenever I see Aegis or Aegis, I think of the shield that both Minerva and Jupiter would wield, and it has a Medusa head on it. It's a powerful shield, but who knows where they got it. So the story ran through the following issues, action comics. Well, I'll just say books. How about that? Because then I've got to do all this stuff. Uh, Adventures of Superman, Batman, and then we have some one-shots, Batman, Flash, Green Lantern, Harley Quinn. We've got Impulse, GLA and JSA, Nightwing, Superboy, Supergirl, Superman. Uh, there's a Secret Files and Origins with Superman, Superman, the Man of Steel, Wonder Woman, 
There's a Wonder Woman uh, one-shot, World's Finest Comics one-shot, Young Justice, a Young Justice one-shot, and then Superman, Batman. Whew, okay. So all that to say that if you want to hear coverage of the full event, you should go to Waiting for Doom, that site, and then the DC OCD episode 22. And I had no idea what DCOCD stood for, and it stands for DC Comics Obsessive Compulsive Disorder. So it's episode 22. They're going to cover it. They have covered it. You need to go over there. I'm just going to talk about some of these things. So I'm going to talk about three of the one-shots, Batman, Nightwing, and JLA, and I'll go in order of their drop dates. And I will say that Nightwing, of the three, Nightwing has the most Barbara appearances, like so much that I could have reviewed that whole issue. So Batman, Our Worlds at War, number one, Hidden Agenda, writer Ed Brubaker, artist Stefano Gaudino, and colorist Roberta Tuz. August 2001 is the cover date. Here's the publisher synopsis. Batman investigates what appears to be a government cover-up regarding a mysterious crash site in, in downtown Gotham. Plus, the animosity between President Luther and Bruce Wayne reaches a fever pitch, setting the stage for an upcoming storyline in the Batman titles. So Batman has Oracle break a coded file and reads notes on something called the Metropolis Project. And as soon as she breaks the code, the file begins erasing itself and Oracle prints as much of the file as she can. Nightwing, our worlds at war, did die and die again. I think that's probably die, die, and die again. Writer Chuck Dixon, penciler Rick Leonardi, inker John Lowe, colorist Noel Giddings, and digital chameleon September 2001 is the cover date. And this synopsis I actually got from the wiki because she uh, Oracle was in it so much, and I considered reviewing it, but I decided not to. Earth is at war, and the people of Gotham are reduced to looting and rioting in the reaction to the crisis. Huh, sounds familiar. In this cor- Into this comes Nightwing, searching for Oracle, who said she needed him. He arrives at her clock tower apartment and is contacted by Oracle again, who tells him that she uncovered a strange computer virus at the same time that she got wind of the coming of Imperiex. Tracing this virus, she became convinced that the virus is well, is from the future and that it sent her the images of her death, which is a very disturbing scene, or several scenes on the holograms that she has. They make their way to Star Labs, where they are met by Professor Orenstein. Oracle calls in a debt for help she gave him, telling him that unless he allows her access to Project Tomorrow, she'll die. Oracle and Nightwing enter the temporal field around the project and emerge in the early 20th century, under gunfire from a hood hired to kill a lady in a wheelchair. Racing through various historical periods, the pair come under fire at every turn, whether in past or future, coincidence, or someone reaching into history to eliminate them, question mark. Finally, in a relatively recent time period, they set up a ruse whereby they allow holographic projections of themselves to get shot, convincing their potential assassin that they're dead. Then they waited out until they can walk in on the signal from the present-day Star Labs. However, when they return, Ornstein is not expecting them. It transpires that they have arrived two days before they left, which explains why they were allowed access with few questions asked in the first place. Elsewhere, Oracle's survival is noted but ignored. It is thought that the possibility of her tracing the virus's source has been greatly reduced and that other matters are far more important in the moment. Some moments of note. Nightwing says that if the world is going to end, he wants to spend it with Babs. What better thing for a guy to say to a woman or 
I should just say, for one significant other to say to the other. Nightwing's first look at Babs's vehicle, I'm pretty sure, since he says, oh, this is your ride, so that's interesting. And also, she is going by Cassandra, so that's her sort of incognito name. Not sort of, it is. It's her incognito name. Nightwing pushes Babs' chair. That seems like a no-no, but she tolerates it. There is some sexy time while they wait for Star Labs a couple times. You know, it's like, well, what do we have to do but wait? Na, 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 na. And just for Professor Allen, my chief hairstyle correspondent, it seems like Babs has an 80s hairdo and headband, which they're going back and forth through time, so I suppose we can allow it. I... Frankly, I had no idea what was going on. With, with with all of these, I'm like, this is crazy. I feel like you can't hop on and just take some of these one shots out of context. You kind of need to understand what's going on with this entire event. So I, that's why I'm not reviewing any of them because I think I would have had to have put in some major time to actually understand and do a respectful job of reviewing. So the final one shot is JLA, our world's at war number one, a date which will live in infamy. (laughs) We've already had that subtitle. So that's interesting. So writer Jeff Loeb, penciler Ron Garney, inker Mark Morales, colors Tanya Hori and Richard Hori. September 2001 is the cover date. And here's the synopsis, the publisher synopsis in our our worlds at war tie-in. Imperiax has initiated his first strike on Earth. Now Earth's first line of defense, the JLA, is going full throttle against him and his probes. Wit is the full impact on Earth as the war against Imperiax begins, and one battle is quickly lost in a big way. So where does Oracle appear? Well, on Earth in Gotham City, Batman is having trouble keeping contact with Oracle, who does manage to relay the message that besides Gotham, Topeka, Kansas has also been hit. Batman asks her to round up Nightwing, Robin, Batgirl, and even Huntress (gasps) if she must. He also tells her to contact the Justice League and tell them that Gotham is his priority. Well, you should trust the Huntress after her helping you out in Joker. Last laugh, but... mm. Oh, boy. So there you go. Our worlds at war. For some reason, that our, our worlds, it's a weird linguistic, linguistically, it doesn't work very well. Again, you should go to Waiting for Doom, episode 22 of the DC OCD podcast for more on that because I really cannot help you. Besides 60 time, there's not much that I can note on those particular issues. So next up, we have listener emails. Mail time. Here's the mail. It never fails. It makes me want to wag my tail. When it comes, I want to wail. And I think I just have two, though I did get one today from Tim Levine, Levine, um, which is funny because I was listening to a Who's Who episode, and I think he was called. (laughs) Oh, man. Okay, let's see here. I know there are two of them. There we go. So these are both from Ian Prime, a.k.a. Ian Miller. 
And he was, they're both on episode 200. Dear Sella, I'm only a few segments into your monumental 200th episode, but it has already been both challenging and <laughs> incredibly delightful. Though as a right, I have been grappling with the issues that you have from a different perspective, seeking out the voices of Glenn Lowry, John McHorder, Chloe Vowdery, and others in that group who are often opposed to Dr. Kendi. I do think these issues are essential to wrestle with courageously and compassionately. And I have to admit, I did not expect what I got with your conversation with Gorf. I was listening to Chuck Dixon's weekly Q&A video a few weeks ago. On one of these videos, he staked out Gorf's claim to create the Birds of Prey and proclaimed Gorf's deservingness of thanks. He mentioned that he wrote Tim Drake deliberately to honor Gorf and his friendship with Dixon. I thought that was nice, but when I listened to you talk with Gorf, I understood why he would be so inspired. Because Gorf was, quite simply, one of the most amazingly charming, warm, funny, nay, hilarious people I have ever had the pleasure to listen to. That was one of the best conversations you have featured, and I eagerly look forward to the rest. Yours incompletely, Ian Prime. And then he comes back. I finished the episode, and the Brian Q. Miller and Scott Beatty segments were incredibly rich and delightful as well, though I'm still blown away completely by Gorf. It was wonderful to hear more tiny details about stuff. Batgirl run and the Bat Books in Beatty's era. Thank you for 200 episodes and here's to the next many years as you catch up to your start like an oh no an Ouroboros yeah the little snake that eats its tail and yeah so well his well Tim Tim just tells me that oh yes see <laughs> I remember she's Shag called him Miss Jennifer Schwartz Levine, um, which cracked me up. But she was actually one of the keynote speakers at the Bowling Green State University. Um, and I loved her talking about Batman and the women in his life and how well or how poorly they are sometimes written. But he says, so I want to mention to you that if you haven't picked up the last story of the DC Universe, one shot from December, you really need to. Saying anymore would be spoiling. So I have heard that from others as well. And I think I will be covering that in February. So I, January, my plan is that this episode in the the back half that we're about to get to i'm doing three jokers which i don't think i really ever wanted to do but we'll talk about it and then in jan in february i'll do i'll talk about the batman title after 100 just what babs is doing and then that last stories and so i think then starting with march i should be caught up and i'll be able to do Bat, like we'll get Batman and Nightwing and what Barbara is doing in those particular ones. I think that's it. Thank you for writing in if you did. And you can always post on the Batman universe as well, which got a facelift recently. And my email is batgirltheoracle at gmail.com. So be sure to check it out there. Okay. Well, when I come back, I will be looking at Batman, Three Jokers. Hmm, who'd have thunk? But first, Zias's Radio Hour featuring Broken People by Almost Monday. See you guys soon. I walked up in how long I can get by. Seems so wrong, but I know I'll be all right. Only been down for a minute. So long when I'm in it, holding on to the ticket. Some things are hard to get, some nights they are regret. But I'm cleaning up the mess. 
Okay, welcome back. So we, I, I am doing three jokers. Let's just get into it. Okay, so I, well, first of all, as a preface, because I didn't really know how things led into the three jokers. And a lot of this comes from Wikipedia, just FYI. So it says, during the Dark Side War storyline, Batman sits on the Mobius chair, which is a time-space dimensional vehicle operated by the new god metron with how jordan observing batman asks the mobius chair what is the joker's real name and is shocked by the results it is later revealed in justice league volume 2 number 50 that the mobius chair told batman there were three jokers which he later brought up to how when he asked about it and batman states that he's going to have to look into that later so there's the preface i did not read dark side war i had to think about it but no i feel like i was aware of that thing but that was a slow burn i don't know when that was but seems like a long so three jokers do you want me to tell you about my history with this book 
My history with this book is that people kept telling me that I should read The Three Jokers. And my thought was, why on earth do you not know who I am? Are we not friends that you would tell me to read this particular book? I don't need more Joker in my life. I need way less. They kept saying, you know, Barbara's got a great characterization. There's interesting shipping going on, Barbara. So then, you know, I thought, why? Well, let's just do it. Let's just do it. I, I mean, I was even guest starred. I, I even guest starred on Rob and Everybody Loves the Drake. And Rob asked me about what I thought about Jason and Barbara and felt bad like he spoiled. And I said, no, no, you know, I knew about it, but I, I can talk to you about it. And I thought, oh, might as well. I've got some space in the back half so I can talk about it. So that's my history. Basically, begrudgingly, I read it. And I, I guess I'll save my, my reactions and everything. So I went on Wikipedia hoping to get a synopsis for, you know, the story. Little did I know I was getting like a full book synopsis. So I might be talking for the next 15 minutes about these, about the synopsis. I mean, thank you, Wikipedia. But this is like more than I've gotten for, I don't know, test the Durbervilles or something I've done over at Required Reading. So <laughs> I just scrolled past one and it's longer than I imagined, but my, my margins maybe are smaller. So maybe it'll be okay. Luckily I have some uh, liquid that I can refresh myself with. Okay. So I'll do the synopsis and then I guess I'll do the synopsis for all three and then take each issue at a time in talking about the, the this. And I'll also do screen share because I do have the issues digitally. Okay, so three jokers. Number one, writer Jeff Johns, artist Jason Fabach, and colorist Brad Anderson. And that's not going to change, so I don't need to do it anymore. Batman crashes... <laughs> I just remembered. Okay, Batman crashes his Batmobile over Thomas Wayne's tombstone, badly injured and in need of medical care. Alfred takes him inside and heals his wounds, of course. Pennyworth asks Mr. Wayne what was the cause of the damage this time. Penguin's umbrella is the answer. And I have to say, which is something that I complained to Donovan about, that someone needs to come up with the standard of are they wearing armor or are they not? Because that's ridiculous. While the butt were stitches the cut, Batman recalls the history of all his major scars. Three of them, they were made by the Joker, every time a slightly different one with a different weapon. Acid sprain flowers, razor-edged cards, and the stick of a tiny flag, which was part of a toy gun. All those memories about pain make Bruce go to that scene, that moment of redefinition. The shooting of his parents by Joe Chill. Again, the voice. Yeah, you know, that's interesting. Let me just break this. As many times as I complain about the killing joke being revisited, it probably pales in comparison to as many times as we've got to see Bruce's parents get killed into the uh, in the alley. I suppose they're comparable traumas. I don't know. I'm trying to not compare people's trauma, but I, I suppose it's the defining trauma of the character. So there you go. The voice of Alfred and the news telling about Joker killing the last members of the Moxon crime family wake Bruce up from his thinking. He must head out to find the clown prince of crime. Barbara Gordon is running on a treadmill. <laughs> this scene reminded me of a scene from Strangers in Paradise XXV. No, it was, um, gosh, it's going to be forever because I keep thinking of things. But if you've read Five Years, I think it's called, Ooh, yes, Five Years by Terry Moore. There's a scene where, is it Tamby? I think it's Tamby is running on the <laughs> treadmill. 
and scares people away because she's crazy. I mean, crazy as in like really in shape. Anyway, she, okay, so Babs is running on a treadmill while remembering what Joker did to her in Batman the Killing Joke because we need a reminder. Barbara hears the television talking about restless leg syndrome and the television talks about beloved comedian Kalani Apaka being killed by Joker in her home. Babs steps down from the machine, broken by her frantic pace, and goes away sweating. Back home as she takes a shower, her fingers trace, yes, we have. We always need a shower scene. Her fingers trace the scar that the Joker left her. There, a bullet made Barbara unable to walk and move her legs for a long time. Thank you, Wikisynopsizer. In a graveyard inside Gotham, Red Hood is mauling down some, mauling down some thugs. Oh gosh, who wrote this? Uh, related to the Joker. He's following a trail... And he wants to take, what? Oh, gosh. I don't, whatever. He's following some sort of trail. For a brief moment, the criminals get the upper hand, getting Jason to think back at his most tragic moment, of course. The Joker slowly but painfully beating him to death with a crowbar, waking up from his trance. Jason finishes all his opponents, revealing that uh, he knew from the start that they would have no useful information and uh, he just wanted to stretch his legs. So at least you can see that there's parallelism or anaphora going on with the the trauma events are being showed outside ace chemicals detective harvey bullock and commissioner james gordon are inspecting a crime scene three men were murdered and tossed inside a vat of chemicals similar to the one that in theory made the joker into who he is they're all dressed like the original red hood batman arrives and starts talking with batgirl hidden above about the fact that joker used those murders as a diversion his real plan was stealing a truck full of his joker turning chemicals babs also noted that the joker wanted to be seen in all three crime scenes including this one he directly stared at all the security cameras in the area suddenly One of the three supposedly dead men wakes up laughing and asking for help. He gets loaded inside an ambulance and Batman tells Batgirl he will escort him to the hospital while he goes to the comedian's crime scene. Commissioner Gordon asks Batgirl if she needs a ride to the scene, but she answers him she's all right, calling for her motorcycle. While traveling, Bruce asks Barbara if Jim knows about her secret life, with the girl telling him he does not. Girl, she's a woman. Then the driver of the ambulance starts to call for help. Someone is attacking the victim inside. As Batman gets in, he discovers that Jason is the one beating the Jokerized man, as he wants information about what Joker said to him before making him take a bath. Batman is furious with the Red Hood's attitude and tries to stop him. Meanwhile, the Joker is driving the truck full of chemicals to an isolated house in the woods. He gets out and knocks at the door, starting a joke. Another Joker opening the door finishes it. The one outside, the clown, welcomes the answer with surprise, but the second Joker, the one inside, tells him that he wrote that line after all. He's the comedian, dressed in the same shirt he wore when he shot Barbara Gordon, paralyzing her. (sighs) The clown though, tells him he should not wear his things, and the two start discussing who was the one that crippled the daughter of the commissioner. Still, they stop and get in as the boss is waiting. The clown comments that he's the only one thinking he's the boss, while the comedian tells him that someone has to be. Inside, the criminal is waiting. A third joker, he tells his two comrades about the plan. They have the chemicals, and they must set up the baths and find some talent. He tells the comedian to come with him to evaluate candidates, while the clown will organize the baths. Back to the ambulance, Batman injects the antidote inside the victim, healing him. Jason comments that the guy was accused of domestic violence against his own son. He was worthy of every punch Jason gave him. Still, the three vigilantes need to focus on finding the Jokers and stopping their plan. Their investigations lead them to the Gotham Aquarium. In there, they find a vat full of Jokerized fish, including a... Not Harold, though. Not that little guy. 
Oh, I lost it. I lost it. Including a menacing great white shark. While they start theorizing what the Jokers might be planning, they are attacked by a band of thugs led by Gaggy, a former lackey of the Joker that the madman called his court jester. As the shooting from Red Hood breaks the glass, the great white shark comes out and eats Gaggy alive. In that moment, the Joker comes out launching some piranhas at Barbara. And please, people, remember that Gaggy was eaten alive by that shark. And he's he's dead now. Please remember that story point because I'm going to bring it up a lot. In that moment, the Joker comes out launching some piranhas at Barbara and then shouts to Jason he wants more of his fear, of his pain. Batman catches him by surprise and knocks him out. With Jason and Barbara sure that he's a real deal, Batman does not answer and leaves searching for the other two, telling Batgirl and Red Hood to keep an eye on him while he organizes the transport to Arkham. The two start questioning him with the Joker laughing and tricking them with some gadgets. After eliminating all the traps the madman has on himself, the Joker starts sharing his thoughts about Red Hood's decisions in life. He's trapped in a cycle of violence even taking the clown's own former alias for himself. Joker provokes Jason. He wants him to shoot him in the head. Jason thinks about this act and he starts warming up at the thought, while Barbara tells him that's not how they work. As Backroad tries to that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Joker last laugh. As Backroad tries to make Red Hood reason, the clown reveals to Jason a detail about their almost lethal encounter. The Joker left him alive on purpose to hurt Batman with guilt and remorse. He also reveals a dark secret that in order to make Joker stop beating him, Jason begged Joker to stop and promised he will be his Robin. Joker laughs that this is true, that Jason adopted Joker's old identity and is spreading violence and destruction just like the Joker. This causes Jason to snap, and Barbara tries stopping Jason by throwing a battering, but Jason manages to kill the Joker by shooting him in the head. <gasps> a shocked Barbara leaves after Jason tells her that even with all the ideals and the moral, she purposely missed her throw, as Barbara has been shown to never miss. Along with the corpse of the man who changed his life, Jason hopes he was the real deal. So that's number one. Number two. Golly. Going to be speaking for hours. Oh, okay. Inside the hideout of the three Jokers, the comedian is hallucinating on having dinner with his family when the criminal comes into the room. He questions the comedian's actions, telling him this is not the time for his fantasies. One of the three is dead as Red Hood shot the clown in the head. The comedian is clearly pissed at the criminal for interrupting his role playing, but does not react. Meanwhile, and I should say that with this, there's a wife and a son involved in that hallucination because that comes into play at number three at the end. Meanwhile, the Batman and Commissioner Gordon are inspecting the house of Judge Wall is murdered by his dogs who are infected with Joker gas. While trying to understand why the Joker targeted the judge, Batgirl steps inside telling Batman they must have a private word. Babs reveals to Bruce that Jason killed the Joker, or at least one version of him. Batgirl wants Batman to take action into his hands and stop Jason as he is now a criminal like he wasn't before. But Bruce tells her there's nothing they can do about it. If Jason confesses about murdering the Joker, Batgirl will be put in jail as an accomplice. Oh my gosh. As she was there during the murder. Also, Bruce still regrets being unable to protect Jason. He's deeply wounded by the fact that he did not understand he was still alive after the Joker took him. Bruce wants to protect Jason because he wasn't able to before, basically. Barbara tells Bruce he must talk and reason with him, also asking him why he didn't approach Jason earlier about his attitude, like way back when. Batman answers that he hoped with time that Jason would heal and become a stronger version of himself, just like Barbara did after her own personal tragedy. Meanwhile, Jason Todd is still out hunting for the other two Jokers, willing to end once and for all the career of the clown prince of crime. He successfully guesses where the Jokers are right now and heads there. I wouldn't say guess, like he actually is a good investigator in this story, but there you go. 
At the same time, Batman and Batgirl go to Blackgate Penitentiary inside the crime scene of the murder of, of Judge Walls. Batman found the fingerprints of one particular criminal, Joe Chill, the shooter who killed Thomas and Martha Wayne. Bruce understands what is Chill's part in all of this, so he breaks into his cell while passing the cells of Rupert Thorne and Dr. Phosphorus. And when Batman arrives at Chill's cell, he finds it empty, and Babs tells him she discovered Chill is sick and terminal from stage 4 cancer, and he only has a few weeks to live. Red Hood's trail leads him to Gotham City Athletic Association, an abandoned sport club. Opening the locked door, Jason steps inside to find dozens of bodies bathed in a Joker-turning chemicals-filled pool. Shocked, he tells himself that Batman must see this in that right moment, or right at that moment, one of the bodies takes him by the leg, and screaming for help, Jason shoots him. Oof. I should rephrase that. Uh, The body is the one screaming for help, but Jason shoots him. As he struggles to focus, Jason gets hit from behind by the comedian who drags him away from the pool, mumbling about him being perfect for their plan and also collecting Jason's helmet. (gasps) Naked. The hood is bound to a chair when he wakes up. The criminal starts speaking to him. Once a petty thief, he was reborn as Robin. Then, broken by a crowbar, he was reborn a second time as the vigilante known as Red Hood. But things happen in threes. He will be reborn a third time. Just like him, he will change. And he is going to lead Gotham's crime now, reborn as another Joker. Jason explodes in anger, cutting the madman off and telling him he already shot the brains out of one of them and he will be the next. As an answer, the criminal starts laughing, then stops, telling Jason that laughing hurts him. Mm. Jason tries to take something out of what the criminal told him about uh, that he could be the original Joker. The criminal then tells him why he was taken as a prisoner, as the comedian puts a red hood helmet on Jason's head, now painted with Joker smile. They're searching for someone to turn into a perfect, better version of the Joker to antagonize the bat. All the victims they killed were tests for their final product, but they were not enough. Jason is the perfect candidate. They know he hates Batman, and they know why he adopted the red hood alias. But in the end, they decided that Jason is not good enough. So he'll have to pass the opportunity. Once the criminal finished talking, the comedian strikes Jason with a crowbar through the helmet. Moments later, Babs and Bruce find the place as well and enter inside. They are attacked by the people the Jokers bathed in the chemicals. And after some struggle, they come out victorious and soon find Jason unconscious and naked on the floor. Babs is in shock while Bruce approaches him to check him out. Jason explodes. Uh, telling him to stay away as all that happened in his life is Batman's fault. (sighs) In anger and despair, Barbara tries and succeeds in calming him down. Jason just wants a safe place to stay, so Barbara takes him to her apartment and leaves him there to rest. Batgirl tries to make Bruce do something, but the Batman tells her Gotham is a priority now, and Jason is safe. They both leave. Jason finds Barbara's wheelchair and books about nerve damage and pain therapy. After a while, Babs comes back and enters the apartment where Jason gets out of the shower. (sighs) Jason confesses to Barbara he looked through her things, especially the pain therapy books. They agree about the fact that there are a lot of similarities between them and their tragedy, and Barbara tells Jason she lived through a moment much similar to the one he's having right now. She wants to help him get better, and as they look into each other's eyes, they kiss. (sighs) This sigh. Barbara then breaks the moment telling Jason they are making a mistake or they made one who knows meanwhile Batman is investigating inside the Batcave about some missing persons files while also observing a place in Alaska on the globe in Blackgate the comedian kidnaps Joe Chill from the infirmary and starts to record his confession about why Joe Chill murdered Thomas and Martha Wayne and if my voice can hold up number three 
Inside the Batcave, Bruce, Barbara, Jason, they are investigating the plan of the three Jokers, who are well, now down to two, who are trying to find people to transform in other versions of themselves. They go over the pictures of the additional Jokers and identify them as a dentist, a serial killer, a drifter, a babysitter, a judge, an artist, a city planner, a zookeeper, an actor, a painter, a fisherman, a felon, an inventor, an interrogator, a chemist, a fighter, a talk show host, a cult leader, a stalker, a coroner, and a surgeon. Boy, I could have stopped any time then, but... I was just too stubborn, so I decided to finish the list. Jason also told Bruce and Barbara about the words of the criminal. They want to create the perfect Joker, even if he does not know what they mean with that. One thing is sure, though, the Red Hood wants to kill the two remaining Jokers, as Batman is too weak to do it himself. This enrages Batman, who tells Jason if he really believes that he never wants to end Joker's life. Who t- that what? He did desire that many times, especially after what the Joker did to both him and Barbara. Ending any kind of argument, Bruce wants to focus on the case. He analyzes the three Jokers and the fact that each and every one of them played a role in his career. The criminal reminds him of the first encounters he had with the madman, similar to how the Joker was in Before Crisis on Infinite Earths. Mm-mm-mm. While the clown brings up memories of cartoonish macabre showmanship like hiring Gaggy as a court jester. The mean... <clears throat> See, I'm not going to make it. The comedian with a sadistic streak stronger than the others links him to the Joker he faced a few times, like in Batman Endgame and Joker War. Batman believes that one of those is the original, and then at some point, he created the other two. Barbara, though, tells him that another option might be right. The Joker created these two recently to better hide his identity. Batgirl hopes that in this confusion, they might finally discover the true name of the Joker, and she asks Bruce if he has some knowledge about what that might be. But Jason tells her that he would not say anything to them and that he believes he knows far more about the Joker's past. But Batman says that he, if he knew the Joker's real name, he would share it with them. They get interrupted by, that would have been the time to fess up Batman. They get interrupted by an alarm signaling something happened at Blackgate. They discover that the Joker's kidnapped Joe Chill. While investigating inside a cell, Batman finds a group of handwritten letters that Chill want to send him, but never did. To know more, he needs to address Reverend Evans, who could tell him what was going on in the conscience of Chill. Talking with the Reverend, Batman learns that Chill wrote the letters long before he got sick and that he really could have changed. Hmm, it's an interesting phrasing. Perhaps he did change. Anyways, feeling guilty for what he did that tragic night. He does feel guilty. Meanwhile, outside of Blackgate, Jason promises to Barbara he will never do what he did with the clown again because of her. Oh, that's lovely. The three head to the condemned Monarch Theater. As inside the pack of letters, Batman found one clearly inserted there by the Joker and a ticket to Mask of Zorro, uh, which is a reference, obviously, to the murder of Thomas and Martha Wayne. They enter. A video about the confession of why Chill murdered the Wayne starts being projected on the screen, uh, where he mentions that he had no idea that the people he shot were Thomas and Martha Wayne. As both Barbara and Jason are occupied with several Jokerized goons, Batman faces the criminal alone. In the end, the criminal says to him he will face the bat together with Joe Chill on the scene of Batman's original tragedy. There's much knowledge going on here. He also tells Batman he thought about turning either Jason or Barbara into the new perfect Joker, but they lack the characteristics needed to be the ultimate version of the Dark Knight's nemesis. From this, he chose the killer Joe Chill because Chill matters more to Batman than the Joker himself. They can do anything to him, but they will never surpass the pain Chill caused when he murdered his parents. Turning Joe into the Joker would make him the one that matters. It's really interesting that... All the Jokers know that Bruce Wayne is Batman. As Batgirl and Robin fend off the attacks of the comedian, 
Batman saves Chill from falling into a chemical bath that would have turned him into another Joker, also kicking the criminal out of the theater. Once again, demonstrating his morale or his his moral aptitude, I suppose. Batman saves Chill another time from certain death, surprising the criminal. Joe knows who Batman is and thinks it would be right if he wanted to take his life. As the criminal reappears, ready to blow off the explosive attached to himself, the comedian shoots him in the head. After this, he asks Batman to take him in. Batman rides with comedian, who happens to be the real Joker, with quotation marks, I would say, riding to Arkham with him while he told Jason to get back home with the Batmobile. Jason once again approaches Barbara, telling her that he would like to be more than friends, but Batgirl says that Jason interprets what happened between them differently than her and keeps her distance. Oh, gosh. As Jason leaves, Commissioner Gordon tells Batgirl she should not associate herself with someone like the Red Hood. Mm. Barbara addressing him as dad. Oh, showing the fact that Gordon clearly knows her identity Mm-mm-mm-mm. tells him that what people she hangs out with uh, is, is none of his business. Meanwhile, the Batman and the only remaining Joker are inside the transport to Arkham. They talk about what happened. The Joker tells him that he knows Batman is Bruce Wayne. Batgirl is Barbara Gordon. Red Hood is Jason Todd. But this does not matter. Joker will never reveal their secret identity because if he does, Bruce's Batman might end his career. Batman asks him what he truly wants. The Joker answers him, telling him he does not want what the other two desired. The clown just wants to see people suffer, laughing at them, which Joker finds boring. The criminal was an old delusional man because of the idea of creating a perfect Joker with an identity is dumb because the Joker is the personification of mystery and chaos. Batman wants to end his game in jokes, but Joker tells him there's no joke this time around. The other two did not understand who he is. He's chaos, the devil, nothing and everything for Batman. He convinced them that Joe Chill would be the perfect Joker because he understood he would never be able to commit a crime more tragic than what Chill did to Bruce. He manipulated everyone and obtained what he wanted. The Batman saved Joe Chill's life and then forgave the poor old man as Bruce Wayne. So now the Joker can be his worst pain until they both die together. Oh, a wolf story. Meanwhile, Barbara is in the gym trying to keep her mind away from bad memories uh, after she's broken to treadmills. Jason writes a letter for Barbara and tapes it to her door. Most people would slip it under the door or put it in, you know, the mailbox for her apartment. But anyways, inside the letter, he confesses to Barbara he always loved her and that he's ready to even abandon the Red Hood identity for good if it means having a chance at being with her. But Barbara never reads the letter because it's like Tess of the Durbervilles. It falls, the janitor collects it with the broom, and it's basically detritus or detritus so the message is gone and so he says if he doesn't hear from her then he'll assume that she wants nothing to do with him so that's what's going to happen in the aftermath bruce visits show just before he dies giving him comfort and forgiveness he then travels to alaska and comes back to gotham batman reveals to alfred that he knew the joker's true name all along discovering one week after their first encounter but his name is not important because revealing it would lead him to joker's secret family it is also revealed which goes to that hallucination there. It is also revealed that Joker's pregnant wife was actually not killed, but taken to a secret place in Alaska and had a son. Batman explains that the Joker's true name must never be known because if the world knows that Joker had a secret family, it would be nationwide news and Joker would kill them. And that ends, oh my gosh, that synopsis. I swear that synopsis took 15 minutes. There was a point in like number three where I thought, what if I stopped, erased this, started over and just did a regular synopsis, but ooh, we just kept going. Okay. Um, 
I want to say that, hopefully this will let me do this, that I, <laughs> I, I couldn't care less about the Joker storyline. What interests me the most, got to figure out how to finagle this, what interested me the most, honestly, was the character interactions, the character, lovely, the characterizations found within this story. So I, I mean, in my comments for all this stuff, like it's, it's really not about this particular story itself. Like Joker, I mean, I, I could care less with the Joker and the three Jokers and all that stuff. It's, it's everything that's surrounding it that I I think is the most engaging and interesting. So I'm going to go through this. I think I I have beats that I will pull out in particular and then sort of some discussions that I want to spend a bit more time on. But I don't know why I was using that. So first off, actually, when we get, and I've already, and I've got a, this is interesting. I do, a big point I have is, is continuity. And I think that's one of the, I think people feel like this is out of continuity. Jeff Johns says that it's in continuity. I don't think it's in continuity. A lot of the stuff doesn't really make sense with it being in continuity. When and why would he ever have a case with Batgirl's suit in there? That doesn't make sense to me at all. That assumes that their relationship when she was Batgirl was better than it actually was. So this, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so... Two. Two in one episode. Is that a record? Because we had the one in Harley Quinn and now we have this one. Shower scenes actually really annoy me. And I should actually be specific because Nicholas Scott has drawn this hubba hubba amazing panel of Dick Grayson in the shower that's supposed to come up in an upcoming Nightwing. And hey, I'm fine with that. But that's objectification. But it's with, yeah, it's with the women. I'm I'm just sort of over it. You know, watching anime, there are several shower scenes or like bath scenes. And I'm like, is this necessary? Why? Why? And it just, it never seems as bad with guys. But it, it, this particular scene and it's not the intent is not to sexualize it, but it just seems to be sexualized with that way. I, I think you know, just looking at that pose in the beginning with the shower scene seems like, yeah, this is a sexy scene, and then we're focusing on the bullets. So it's like I'm, I am. It's exactly like, in my opinion, Heroes in Crisis and that whole scene. Just like you get confused, you're you're having mixed mixed ideas of of what this scene is supposed to be. If I look at that second panel, I just be like, oh, it's a sexy scene with Barbara Gordon, which I don't want. And then we focus on the bullet, but I'm already turned off by it because we had that in the beginning. And then, of course, doing that. So just to say, I don't need it. I don't want it. Okay, so later on, I don't know where this is, but their jaws, oh, nerd, let's see, their jaws were broken into smiles, making matching dental records nearly impossible. I don't know if that's how dental records actually work, because you would have to, like, completely mold the whole face to to mess that up, so I felt like that was a bit ridiculous. The <laughs> does your father know your back girl? Um, which we'll actually get back to. I, I said, Oh, that's you know, she says, Of course not, but 
that contradicts what happens at the very end, but it also just annoys me. So even if we just look at this particular issue and that whole discussion, it just annoys me that he doesn't know. I think, why not? He absolutely should know by now. But then if you look at issue three where she says dad, and it's not a whisper, it's not a stage whisper, I find that interesting. I have a question about what she's doing here. She's blowing up a tire. I looked at this for a while. Um, To stop the ambulance, she's blowing up the tire, which seems ridiculous since there's a patient inside and two people are also fighting inside. (laughs) So well done, Barbara. Uh, Again, yeah, I'm just going piecemeal, but there are some moments I do want to talk about. So... When we get to, this is a huge, for me, this is a huge story point. So we've got this scene, Gaggy, here's Gaggy, and let's have some fun now. Jason Todd, he shoots it. He, agree or disagree, Jason Todd kills Gaggy, okay? Now, the manner of death is shark, (laughs) but he is the one who sets a shark. So I want you to remember that. I want you to remember that, that Jason Todd kills Gaggy with that shark. Okay. So I found this really interesting. Let me see if I can find it. His reasons for becoming the Red Hood. Let me see if I can find this. Oh, there we go. Yeah. So have you ever wondered why he uses my former moniker? This is the Joker talking. Who in their right mind would take on the identity of their killer? Am I right? And Jason says, I took it because I'm owning what you did to me. You made me into this. I'll be your destruction. And I, oof, I found this really intriguing. And I don't know, I'm no Jason Todd expert. So I don't know if this jives with his, his previous characterizations, but this... Oh, man, it seems he is damaged. So I, I I could say it seems really damaging, but also just really toxic and like what's happening here. I'm owning what you did to me. You made me into this. But to go, oh, man, it just reminds me of Batgirl, what was it, 47 or whatever, where I got really upset that that Joker and Barbara, you know, were being associated with each other in this manner. Like, would you, would you associate a victim with its or his or her abuser? And this is like, he's very much doing that, right? Like he is now fully associating himself with his abuser. And I don't know, like, it seems really like badass like yeah this is what happened to me i'm i'm owning it i'm gonna be this but also it's like man like he is in you joker is in you you're never going to be able to separate yourself from him and if that's true then golly we can certainly see i think why jason is the way he is and and that i i think there's nothing that anyone could do that Bruce could do that Barbara could do, even though he says, Barbara, you know, I would change for you that he is like this. I I just found that this was, this was really intriguing. I I don't know if, again, like I said, I don't know if this is something that's new with his characterization, but man, is there trying to think of anyone else that sort of did that, you know, Frank Castle, maybe that sort of taken on the guise of the other person. I guess, I mean, if, if his intent, almost would be to like destroy the Joker, then it would almost be like, you made me into this and now 
you are destroying yourself. So if he were able to get rid of all of the Jokers and the original Joker specifically, but yeah, it's just a really intriguing idea. And, and I think then that characterization and, and, and juxtaposing Barbara and, and what she does with Jason, like you can see, sort of the two paths that, you know, the the one went this way, the other one went this way, the what if path. So, I mean, think about the flip of what Jason Todd would have been like had he come back and been more like Batman or if Barbara had own, uh, you know, owning what Joker did to her and what would she wear a Hawaiian outfit, a Hawaiian Batgirl outfit and been lethal so that's it's really interesting but i just feel like it's so i don't know if toxic is the right word but my gosh like you're wearing his skin like you i don't know it's almost though that joker has won the fact that he has done this like he, he if you're owning that and and you made me into this it's like he won isn't there wouldn't it have been better to stick it to the joker and not become that or the Red Hood. Because it's like paying homage. It's almost like respect to giving props to the Joker. So, yeah. So I've been thinking about that. So that's pretty interesting. So then, of course, we have Jason shooting the Joker. And I do have to say that, yeah, reading this after reading Joker Last Laugh was interesting just because Barbara... Uh, Jason is is very much speaking in the way that Barbara was speaking in that storyline and Barbara is speaking in the way that Dick was initially speaking to Barbara in that story as well. Oof. And then, yeah, so this is something I'll come back to, but the fact that uh, Jason, it's revealed that Jason pled for his life and so that he wouldn't be killed. He, he said that he would be Joker's Robin. So I'll get to that at the, at the end of my whole thing. But he ends up killing him, and of course, the the big thing is that she throws her battering, and it hits something. It looks like it hits his hand, maybe, or swipes through because there's like a blood trail there, and he is dead. and And the big reveal, of course, is that you miss. When's that last time you missed Barbara? And uh, she doesn't say anything. She's stepping in. I, this is a pretty big scene, I would say. And she doesn't say anything except uh, screw you, Jason, which this is a <laughs> 17 is a black label. So I would think there'd be some heavier language, but that's okay, Babs. I'm okay with you not saying the F word. But I feel like, yeah, subconsciously, that might be true, but like shame on her. And then if we do take this as factual, that there was a subconscious slip and and she didn't fully stop him from shooting. I think then there's some hypocrisy going into how hard she's pushing Batman to, to get Jason arrested and, and undergone. So then this whole thing though, cause this is going to carry through the rest of the, the issues is that he killed Joker. I don't understand why everyone is so upset about this, but no one's upset about Gaggy. Jason killed Gaggy. And why are people all of a sudden so upset here? They should have been upset initially at Jason killing Gaggy. Then he should have been ripped off the case and not have been here. So I'm super confused about that and feel like that is an inconsistency. But a heavy and weighty scene for sure, for sure. And I hope that's the right one. Man, he would go through and kill all of them. Is this the one where it hurts to laugh is symbolic or 
I don't remember if this was the one. I feel like that was later on. That's an issue number two because I do have something to say about the the hurting to laugh. Oof, man. Mm-mm-mm. Yeah. So, I mean, the screw you, Jason, could be he's calling her out and he's right. And so <sighs> she doesn't like having to own up to that potentially. So that's number three. Um, not much analysis on my half, just some particular points. But I would say it's just interesting. Batman doesn't yell at Jason for killing Gaggy. And then, you know, we get this whole thing and which will carry us through that he killed one of the Jokers. Okay. So that's number one. Okay. Number two. Yeah, I know. The first thing I say is, OMG, why are they so... Ugh. I have to say that some of this... Actually reminds me of the bad bad girl era in New 52. I, golly, where's Hood? Yeah, so, yeah, the first thing I say is, OMG, why are they so upset about this dead yogurt, not gaggy? I just, uh, <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, so the Batman and the Batgirl conversation about Jason, I, they, really interesting. I, I think a lot of them, not a lot of them, Batman is a Batman that I'm almost that I almost can't recognize in this book. And I do mean it positively. It's just that I'm not used to this. He I would say is the most compassionate Batman that I've ever seen. I shouldn't say ever seen. He is the most compassionate Batman that I've experienced in a while cuz you know I'm in the 2000s with my book and I call him a bat jerk. But here's one of these examples that he Oh man, he, it's really hard for him. You you see this and, and I'm sure we saw this before. It's been a while since I read Death in the Family, but the fact that he can't forgive himself for Jason, that however he can help Jason, he hopes can add up somehow in, in making up for what happened before that he thought he was dead and, and didn't help him when he, when he came back. And then this really big moment i feel like you know why did you wait until now to think he needed to be talked to and he says i was hoping he was more like you so giving him the benefit of the doubt that he would while he had this this dark history as the red hood that he would come around and be like babs who went through again not a similar but not a dissimilar trauma and she was able to pull out of it so that there again is that i I think Having Jason and Babs in this story is really interesting because you can see the other half, you know, what would have happened had I gone down this particular path. But just, I was hoping he was more like you. I mean, when have we ever, not often, when have we ever seen Batman really compliment and and show that amount of regard and respect for Barbara? Not often. So so just big moments, I, w- I, uh, I feel like, in this particular scene here. I do, I I was trying to figure out what I meant by my particular note, but he's not weak, Jason. I think especially in the later part of this issue, he holds up. And and I think if he were a weaker person, he would have become Joker, like the Jokers want him to. And so he's strong, but perhaps just in a way that doesn't fit with Batman's moral code his his ethics and everything and he's i mean certainly not you know if we were to compare jason with someone who's on the outside of the line it it would probably be huntress though she has her different reasons like that's not necessarily never mind that's coming from trauma too so he's a strong character just in a in a different way i i think he is able to withstand a great deal. It's just that he went down this other path, which now we know why, 
as we think back to him saying that he oh, wanted to be what the Joker made him to a certain extent. Okay, I, I do think something that I'm not used to is Jason being a good detective. He's the one, I think, in two different cases. I mean, wasn't he the one that helped them get to the aquarium and then he helps himself get to that particular pool? I don't know if I see him do that that often. So I appreciate that characterization of him. Missed opportunity right here, folks. This is Black Label. We could have had so much male nudity, especially when Jason is nude. Let's Can we get to that? Look at this. <gasps> but we did not see any male nudity, and it was Black Label. I guess they learned from Batman Damned with his little wee-wee that they weren't going to do it again. This actually kind of reminds me of Casino Royale and that whoo. That scene that makes everyone super nervous. I will say that that scene, oh, that's where the, yes, this is a horrifying scene with all those zombies coming out to get them. Feels very Resident Evil. And I think this is where he says it hurts to laugh. And I wondered about that. Does it hurt when you laugh? Da, 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 da. He's going to drunk her. Shoot. I can't remember. I know it happens in this scene, though. It hurts when I laugh, which I find really interesting. Like it really, if you look at that bottom left panel, it really does seem like it's hurting his head somehow. So it's got to be some sort of physical issue. But I just wonder if it's, there's some sort of symbolism as well that it hurts when he laughs. Like he's got to force himself to do it. These sorts of situations really aren't funny, but he's got to find his way into it. I don't know. I feel like there's something. It, it's saying something. And it, it also reminds me of the times where Babs has, as Batgirl, has laughed at Joker and he's really not like that. It hurts when I laugh. Hmm. Yeah. I just feel like it's more than just physical. I, I think that there is a literal, he's in pain, but man, for the Joker, for it, him to hurt when he laughs, I mean... That's kind of crazy. That's his whole shtick. And so it's almost like his whole existence is pointless and it's all a sham. I don't know. Something to think about. What does that mean to you, the the non-literal meeting? Okay. Babs and Jason. So I've got something with it. And I said, oh gosh, am I all right? Oh, man. That is a dumb question. Jason, are you all right? What do you think? Oh, gosh, you did this to me. You put me on the path. Oh, man. And I do hate you for it, for leaving me in the dirt, replacing me with one Robin after another without a thought. And one of my notes here is actually, I suppose Jason and Barbara share a similar hatred of Bruce when you come down to it. And I think we don't see that in this particular issue with Barbara hating Bruce, because I think she and Bruce seem to be very much in line with one another on, on many things, not necessarily the Jason situation, but yeah, I mean, if you think about, I I would, you know, if we put in the killing joke and, and all of that, you know, I heard you and he laughed together. What were you laughing at? Were you laughing at me? And then the playing card, you know, I never forget about that playing card and and all of that stuff and and how he treated her afterwards, you know, which some people would say it's caring, but also just keeping her on surveillance and everything like that. I feel like there is a similar hatred there, though Jason, I think, has difficulty getting over. I don't think maybe he won't ever get over it. And I think Barbara, while there might still be some resentment, I don't think it's hate. And and I think she is, uh, has 
healed. I, I think healing is oftentimes an ongoing, ever-present process, especially with what she's been through. But I, these two characters are really similar. Like th- this is what I'm saying about three Jokers. Who cares about Joker? Who cares about the storyline? But to have a case study of these characters, I think is the most interesting part of this story. And, and to see what Bruce, what Batman's relationship has been like, what is effect on them has been like it is something that that is really interesting and, and has given me new insight i think into into barbara gordon as well well gosh yeah what about jason yeah see look at all this stuff you need you here see there's some anger there because i i feel like that's some of the stuff that she would have gone through like i needed you where were you but now it's transferred on jason so it's almost like she's reliving that whole thing this is interesting just that she is taking care of Jason. So she was cared for after the killing joke. And now she's the one that is caregiving. And I, I, I liked the scene that he finds all that stuff and, and sees what she's been going through and how much stronger she's gotten with all of that. And so this is, I say, I feel like there's rewriting history going on. So healing with the help of my dad, my physical therapist, and so many other people who were there for me, I tried to look at the positive, a tragedy that I was able to literally walk away from thanks to the people that loved me. I just feel like I disagree with her sentiment that she was able to walk away because of the people who loved her. At least we didn't see that. We didn't see that in comics history. And I felt like, well, Jim probably definitely would have been there. You know, Batman, did was he really there as much? I think we'll see later on some rewriting of the events there of post-killing joke with, with Nightwing and whether he was there or not. But for me, gosh, it just seems like she was doing it mostly on her own. Like, I might give her her father and everything, but other people, I don't know. I don't know. I feel like we're we're... <laughs> Maybe it's best that we rewrite this history, that we have it more positive. But for it seemed really negative after all of that happened. And that's mostly, I think, with DC and editorial and what they wanted done with her. And now it's like looking back like, hey, look at what she's overcome. It was probably a really positive thing. So I, for me, I feel like, mm, I don't think that's the way that happened. But maybe it's better that it's this way. I'm not sure. Okay. Uh, we have this moment... Uh, we all wish we had been there for you. Who hadn't said that? That's so interesting that all of a sudden, you know, she's speaking. She's the mouthpiece of the Bat family. It's almost like the regrets of DC Comics is coming through her mouth that we all wanted to be there for you, Jason. No one has ever said that to me. Really? No one? And then, of course, we have this shipperific moment. He's in a towel. He is in a towel. So... I think I'll wait to talk about it, but just know that it's a shipper and know that I'm not disgusted by it. Okay, I do have opinions on it, but we shouldn't have done that. Oh, my. Just want to let you know. (laughs) Okay, don't kiss someone if you want them to know you care about them. Maybe just give them a hug or something, even though he's in a towel. And, yeah, just the close-up on the case. I don't really understand that. And I also don't know. So there's another reason why I don't think it's in continuity. The suit that she's wearing, uh, the black and yellow suit, she would not have that in this particular era. Like, where it is now, with if it were in continuity, she would have the black and gray one that was created when she moved back to Gotham. And, yeah, having the black and yellow one just makes her so much 
of a Batman acolyte and sidekick to Batman than I feel comfortable with. And so that's one of the lower points or one of my cons of, of this story is that because we are missing people like Tim, which I guess in continuity or Damien or Dick, Barbara has very much filled that particular role and is Batman's right hand man woman. And that's from the very beginning where she's up on the rooftop feeding him some information and, and him getting that. But symbolically to have this black and yellow to really, I think, more match Batman is interesting. I don't like it. I don't like what that means. I like the respect that he gives her in this, but I think it might be misplaced. I think it's out of necessity for the storyline rather than out of necessity for what the, the character deserves. Okay, I think that's it that I want to say for, yeah. Okay, so we'll stop that share. Your screen showing is cool. Okay, so I think, okay, last one is number three, and then we'll do overall analysis. Boop. Okay, yeah, so starting in issue two, I guess it was, there's lots of talk oof, about you know, let's bring Jason, let's make him accountable for this murder. Not of a uh, gaggy BTW. How many times do I need to mention that? For murder, it's stupid. It's That's like the worst <laughs> part of this is, yeah, let's bring him. He's He's got to go. Murder. Why wouldn't you have done that for anybody else? For Huntress? I mean, even though I tried, I am a Huntress apologist, why wouldn't you have done that before now? And then just there's no way they would seriously consider this. I even mentioned in my notes, look at Huntress. It's just also not what Batman does. He just disavows and disowns people. And then, of course, you know, throwing everybody's identities in there and and Barbara would probably be arrested too because she was there and all this. It's just like, why, you know, one issue was enough. You should have just let it rest, but it it comes up again. It's kind of ridiculous. Ay, ay, ay. Okay. Oh, somebody says, oh, look, you have to see how manipulative that, oh, no. Okay. Yeah, so this panel, you're not siding with him, are you? I mean, come on, Barbara. You have to see how manipulative he is. Look what he dragged us into. And I questioned it. I said, Bruce, manipulative? Has Babs been manipulated? (laughs) And, well, number one, is what he's dragged us into. Jason, I think he's talking on two levels. He's got the macro and the micro level. I I think he's, he's certainly talking about this whole case. And then I I think that's a small. And then the large is just that he dragged them into being who they are currently, Red Hood and Backroll. And ugh, golly, no, if he believes that, though, think of how he's basically saying he's a weak-minded individual. He's the one. What? I don't know. Was he manipulated into becoming Robin? feel like he hadn't he enjoyed it for a certain period of time maybe he was manipulated in the beginning but babs did that oh now it depends on the era of backroll but Babs did it of her own accord she wasn't manipulated into everything anything sorry was she ever manipulated i wonder i feel like there may have been times i can't think of one off the top i feel like as oracle i think there were potentially times that he tricked her into doing certain things and uh she did not like that but 
in this moment, I don't know if that is true, though the whole fact that he does lie to them, as we find out in the end, I think is problematic with that. But uh, is Batman manipulative? I I mean, that's a huge question. I wonder from you guys, you listeners, you viewers, do you find Batman a manipulative character? I wonder. I don't know. I, 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 manipulative is not necessarily the first word that I would think of. I'm trying to think even with Cass and what's been going on there. Hmm. Maybe. I think it depends on what character he is with. There might be certain circumstances with Cassandra or, you know, kind of convincing her to get out of the bed, the clock tower. I feel like maybe that was a, a small form of manipulation. With Huntress, I think there might be some manipulation there as well. So maybe, but to call him, I don't know. I don't know. I think that's, you know, I'm going to defend Batman to a certain extent in this story, but I'll say no. I did, here's where I brought up that that Bruce is softer in the story. Um, I don't mean it as an insult, but he just doesn't hold on to grudges. I mean, he's ready to start over. Is this here? We have to start over and do that. When? When have you ever seen Batman do that? We have to start over. I I think that's amazing for him. Not even, I mean, this is what, a short time period, but Joe Chill, ready to forgive Joe Chill. We also see him showing, I think, empathy. We see some fear, especially when he goes to Chill's cell and has trouble speaking, which I think that was in number two. So I missed that one. But he, he, the, the font is very small. Like, you know, when you, hello, <clears throat> hello, that kind of thing. And, and whoa, we've never seen that sort of thing happen. And here I, I would say that at times I felt like Barbara was more like the Bruce Wayne slash Batman that I get annoyed at. <laughs> Then Bruce actually is just because you can't let the Joker murder go, which again, gaggy, hashtag gaggy rip, uh, get that trending. But I, I, yeah, I like this characterization. It's just different. It's odd to, to see it at times. Oh, yeah. There was a weird segue that I didn't get as much. He's probably some nobody. So this is a bad thing. I, I don't like that Bruce did this. I guess that's more in, in line with the character that I would foresee. So is there anything else you can tell us, Bruce? And he says, yes, uh, I'm sorry I failed you, Jason. So that's just like a weird, really? That's, you're going to, I guess he's trying to non-subtly get off of that particular subject and, and get back onto Jason. Or he was never off of Jason's, uh, that whole thing. Okay. Oh, yep, yep, yep. So my critique again with, and there are some shipper moments there. I skipped over that one particular one that he would give up Red Hood for her. Ooh, yeah, look, okay. So we see this blam goes through his shoulder again, please. Oh my gosh. Why don't these people wear body armor or some consistency? Batman forgives basically, not even basically, Batman forgives his parents' murderer And really, is there anything potentially stronger in comics than that? And so that's something that I wish would be in continuity. Some of these characterizations here, I think, are really interesting. So that's huge. That was a huge moment for Batman. And and, and I like how he is in this particular story. Later on, we have this moment. Here we are. You okay? I'm fine. Commissioner. Derpa, derpa, derpa. You have my support as much as Batman does, but Red Hoodie isn't someone you should be involved with. What I do with him is in your business, dot, 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 dad. So this is huge. So contradicts number one. 
And there's no reaction as if like she's coming out of the closet. And so he would freak out because that was the first time. But that is not a whisper. I'm looking at the font. The font is the same size as the previous bubble that is attached to it. So in this continuity, Barbara and Jim do know each other. Yeah, if that's true, though, I just wonder if that's if he does know that she Babs and Batgirl are one and the same. Does it make sense that he would say you have my support as much as Batman does? Because I wonder if he would play the protective father and say, I would rather you not be in this business. So that's really interesting. Does she out him? Should that font have been smaller and it was a whisper? I don't know. But that's super duper interesting. But I feel like it's an out of continuity story. So there we go. Okay, the letter. We see Jason attempting, attempting to change The question, though, is, is Jason changing for himself or for Barbara? And I've already talked about Tess, Tess the Durbervilles, which the reference is that Tess, kind of on the eve of her wedding, it was a little farther off, wrote this letter confessing what had happened to her, which was basically that she was sexually assaulted and slips it under the door, but it gets under the carpet. And so her groom-to-be doesn't get the letter and all whole sort of problems <laughs> arise after that. But anyways, um, so I, yeah, is he changing for himself or for Barbara? <sighs> and then my second question with this is, and this is for you guys as well, if you're still tuning in, should people with shared trauma be romantically involved? Which I think is a big one. So I feel like he is changing for the thought, the hope of Barbara. He is not changing for himself, which I think is a mistake. I don't think you should change for someone. I think you need to change recognizing that you have shortcomings and you might need to work on yourself. And for someone to say that I am owning what you did to me, Joker, and I'm going to be what you made me, that person I think needs to work on themselves. And so Babs, I cannot be that instrument of change that the reason why the means why she's uh, instrument of change maybe that doesn't work but the reason she can't be the reason i don't think that that is healthy because that means that everything you are reliant on her and if anything were to fall through which it is because the letters gets thrown away in the trash that means that you're not going to change because the person you were relying on said no basically tacitly okay so there's that one i think he's changing for babs but he needs to change for himself the second one should people with shared trauma be romantically involved and please you know people write in i'd love to hear what you have to say about is is jason trying to change for himself or for babs and then with this shared trauma i <laughs> i just watched speed rewatched it's been a while and two times, once it was said by Sandra Bullock's character and once by Keanu Reeves' character, it was something about relationships that start off from trauma never work out or something like that. It, that's basically the gist. And I chuckled at that because I rewatched it after I had read this. And I feel like that's true. Uh, just like people, I don't know, who have who are sharing loss, that might not be the best now. It, this is not an always and forever kind of thing because there are always exceptions to things. But once you strip that away, to have trauma be the basis 
to have this circumstance be the basis of their relationship or the fact that they share the joker in common? Do you want to be in a relationship with someone like that? Or not really like that. Sorry, that sounded wrong. But in a relationship with someone that shares that, is that all you're going to get? Like, is that your only commonality? And so that's all you're going to talk about? Uh, Because I wonder, you know, are these two compatible? Uh, So I guess we'll get into, so I feel like I think it's dangerous for the shared trauma situation because I think that you need to work on that trauma apart from each other and then come together. And so I think that goes back to the changing for yourself rather than the other person. And then maybe you can be together. But I think there needs to be space. If these two were to get together, there needs to be some serious space and working that out and then coming together. And I think Babs might have the right way of it. Just that uh, now, I don't know why she, cause I, that was a weird, I mean, that moment itself, I can kind of understand, but the reaction afterwards is like, Whoa, yeah, you're misinterpreting it. Well, I don't think at the time, I don't think he was misinterpreting it, but uh, you made a mistake kissing him. So, are these two compatible? So here's the big question. People wonder about this ship. Now, I <laughs> this is the second time I've seen these two together. The other one was Batman and Robin Eternal, where he was very much the voice of reason. She was off the wall bonkers, and he was pulling her back from the ledge. And I appreciated that, and I think there were some good romantic potential moments. But having a serious relationship between these two, I don't think I can see. I think there'd have to be some major development and I think more time together platonically and leading up to that before any romance could happen. So right now, no, I just don't think they're as compatible as say uh, Dick and Babs. And, And I think his outlook on life is dour. And I think she all sometimes has a dour outlook on life and she really needs a positive influence on her life. And I think these two would date to the detriment of each other. So, and I'm not only going to blame Jason on that. I don't think it's Jason bringing Babs down. I think Babs would uh, potentially bring Jason down to a certain extent. I, I think right now it seems like she would elevate him because that's how this was presented, but she's got her own baggage that she needs to get through. And so I, I just don't think it's a good idea. I do feel bad about the letter being tossed in there. I think they could have a serious conversation. That's kind of a dumb way to have that end, but there we are. Okay. There's that Joker. Yeah. I mean, Batman knows his name. So I do wonder why he lies to the squad. I understand his reasonings for the world, but why not trust people? Is this because Jason is there? If, if only, Babs were there, would he have told Babs? But then that sort of contradicts, I think, what he was saying and and trying to believe in Jason and giving him the benefit of the doubt, you know, like give him trust. Though in this instance, even though I always say, you know, why doesn't Batman trust so-and-so, I do feel like he would go off. Uh, Jason would do something with that mother and son and, I don't know, try to trap the Joker and then it would turn out poorly. But I do wonder if if Babs had been the only one in the cave, would Bruce have told her? And then I do wonder if Joker, the, the actual Joker, knows that his wife and son are in fact alive because hallucination images uh, specifically of the son, because the wife, you can understand he was with the wife, but his son just looks as he does in reality. So I do wonder about that particular moment. Okay. So that's, I mean, overall, the the big 
character moments and those discussions. Hopefully that was worthwhile, worth the 15 minute synopsis that I had. What I wonder about, I think I've discussed the continuity as much as I really need to. I I think, no, I don't think it makes sense for it to be in continuity as much as the writer feels like, yes, it, 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 in my opinion, it doesn't make, it does not make sense. What does this add? What does this add to the Joker, Batman, Robin, Batgirl mythology? Because I think if it is this special that you're paying overpriced, right? And it was in the black label and all of that stuff. Is it, was it worthwhile? With Jason, I think we learn that whole, I'll be your Robin. I think that was the shocker there and, and learning the reasons of why he wants to, wanted to become Red Hood and just how damaged he really is. With Joe Chill, we learn about um, his disabilities that he had, which I think provides him with more empathy. Like the reader can perhaps empathize a bit more with him that he wasn't able as the story. He wasn't able to do well in school, I think because of his disabilities. And then he went, his whole life went away with that basically. And and he was uh, poor and downtrodden and he didn't realize that the, the Waynes were trying to help people out. And so I think while obviously what he did was wrong, I think better understanding people who, I mean, they're actual people who are in situations like that. So perhaps we're getting, giving empathy to, towards Joe Chill, who may have mostly been a one-dimensional character leading up to now. Maybe there's a commentary on the criminal justice system, just with his experiences in there. And I said, golly, could Joe Chill be bigger, Thomas? I forgot I wrote that because I was thinking as I was talking, like, wow, this reminds me of Bigger Thomas. And shoot, now I can't remember what that book is called, even though I'm going to talk about it later on. But yeah, it's it's almost like that, just this, uh, I don't know, almost like hating yourself, hating society, and then it leads you to do something unspeakable um, that you later regret, but then you sort of have dug yourself into a, a, a big hole and you need to get yourself out of there. Uh, so with Joe Chill, we learned some stuff. Batman forgiving Joe Chill, I think was huge. Perhaps truly understanding Jason and Barbara's trauma for the first time. I think especially Jason, but through that, perhaps Barbara's as well. And then Joker, I mean, he's number one in Bruce's life again, just in another way. So I don't know that this necessarily did anything to enhance his character. And with Barbara, ooh, I don't know if I learned anything new about Barbara. I think she is portrayed more like Batman than Batman is. She's held in higher regard and is given more respect by Batman than she is normally. You've got that shipping and you kind of have to figure all that out. And and I don't I You see, I think, her conflicting feelings in uh, or towards Joker. And you, we also learn apparently that she's able to pull herself up by several loved ones. <laughs> so I guess that's a bit new. So, so adding more positivity to her history, I guess, is what we learned. So is this worthwhile? I think if you're a Jason Todd or a Barbara Gordon fan, maybe you should read it. And, and I think it, it asks questions and those character moments, like I said, like e- even Batman. I mean, Joker, people are going to read it because of the Joker, but I, like I said, I couldn't care less. It was everything else but the Joker that I was interested in. Oh, yeah, I guess we could say with Barbara that apparently Jim knows her identity or and she's very open with it. So, so there you go. So 
I don't, I mean, I could rate it out of what 10, oh, 10 jokers. I almost, what would I give this? You know, huh. But it's not the story. I'm rating like the character interactions and all of that. Maybe a solid eight. I don't know. Just with character interactions though. Maybe, maybe an eight out of 10 jokers. So, so there you go. I mean, I don't know. I may have shocked people by saying that more or less I enjoyed it. And I have thought a great deal about some of these circumstances, but I'd love to hear what you guys have to say. What are the three questions? Do you feel like Batman is a manipulative person? If so, examples. Do you feel like Jason would change for Babs or for himself? And should people with shared trauma be romantically involved? So those are, I think, the three questions. Oh, and then actually the fourth question is, is there any significance with the the quote, it hurts to laugh, or is it just to be taken literally? Okay, so that's my coverage on Three Jokers. So now I just have anime watch list and literature recommendation, which of course those will go on for a long time. Okay, so anime watch list, I have at work. And believe me when I say I'm absolutely working because I'm just waiting for for patients to be called in. And so in between those patients, I just watch an episode of anime or something like that. So I watched Iwa Kakeru, Kakeru Sport Climbing Girls. It's 12 episodes. 2020 came out. Konomi Kasahara, a junior high school girl, has made a big name after winning numerous competitive puzzle game tournaments. The story begins when she finds a sports climbing club in her high school. Using special skills other than that of puzzle games, Kasahara becomes fascinated with climbing. And so that was a lot of fun. It gave me some motivation for working out and things like that. And then K-On, which is two seasons, a special and a movie. I am currently on the second season. The first season's 13 ep- No... The first season's 14 episodes. It's 12 and then two like holiday specials. Second season's 26 and then the movie. And this was coming out around 2009. A fresh high school year always means much to come. And one of those things is joining a club. Being a, in a dilemma about which club to join, Yui Hirasawa stumbles upon and applies for the light music club, which she misinterprets to be about applying simple instruments <laughs> such as castanets. Unable to play an instrument, she decides to visit to apologize and quit. Meanwhile, the light music club faces disbandment due to a lack of members. This causes the club members to offer anything from food to slacking off during club time in order to convince Yui to join. Despite their efforts, Yui insists on leaving due to her lack of musical experience. As a last resort, they play a piece for Yui, which sparks her fiery passion and finally convinces her to join the club. From then onward, it's just plain messing around with bits and pieces of practice. The members of the light music club are ready to make their time together a delightful one i could put this under shags mac and cheese of comfort and joy as well and this has just been so fun it's a slice of life but i don't know if i've laughed out loud as much as i have with an anime as i have here and and i'm at work so i'm like laughing at loud i pause and then i rewind to watch that particular scene again but the teacher's ridiculous and what she does and <laughs> some of the the things the uh Oh, the girls, some of the, yeah, that they get up to is, is, is interesting. So I, I recommend it, giving it a shot. I am watching the dub on Netflix. I don't know if there is a subtitled version, but there you go. Okay. Uh, well, the, what are you wearing segment and, you know, just a Wonder Woman jacket basically, and a UVA hoodie. And then, of course, this purple here, which is the story, right? This purple fringe in my hair. 
I went to go get my hair cut before Christmas and my stylist said for Christmas, I'll give you a color, like a color highlight for your bangs for free. And so I was emotionally prepared for the a haircut. But then this one, I thought, oh, I don't know. And so I thought, you know what? Mine as well. You know, I, I own up to be a nonconformist and, and somewhat adventurous. So I, I had to live up to that name. And I did it. So it's purple and it's supposed to wash out. And I will say that recently <laughs> in in when I've been washing my hair, that the purple water has not been dripping. So I feel like it's not washing out anymore so it should be interesting i especially wonder what will happen once i need to get the blonde touched up but there you go okay and now we are on literature recommendations which could be a bunch uh, i went to the wrong one went to want to read and i did i read 133 books in 2020 so i did beat my original challenge that i had on goodreads okay so the last one i mentioned was the queer history the gay revolution yeah okay so next up light of the world by elizabeth alexander which is that was a memoir of a woman who lost her husband and she is a poet so it the the language even though it's in prose really beautiful so i gave that five stars uncle tom's cabin by harriet beecher stowe was okay. That was for my reading list. So I just needed to get it over with. I mean, I don't know that I would have chosen to read that otherwise. The Five Years Omnibus by Terry Moore. So connecting basically all of his stories with Echo and Strangers in Paradise and Rachel Rising. So that was really good. I do have some questions though. Sweet Bird of Youth by Tennessee Williams, which was a downer of a play, a downer. (laughs) I like other Tennessee Williams plays more, so it was okay. Natives, okay. Native Son, this is it, by Richard Wright. (sighs) What to say about this? So this is where Bigger Thomas comes in. So I think it's both heavily lauded, highly lauded, and criticized, and It's lauded because it gives insight into basically what a black man would feel and think during the 1950s, I believe. And uh, so from his perspective, so this was something that was innovative. Criticized, and I... I was totally falling along with this. I'm like, wow, this is hard to read, but you know, I'm there. I'm glad they're showing this perspective of, you know, he hates himself. He hates society. He hates his family. He hates um, other people. He hates the white people helping him out. Like I, I, I totally got, you know, this anger and everything. And then all of a sudden he, as I call it, he lennied, he lennied a girl kind of by accident, but then it, it quickly got out of control because then after he lennied her, and I mean Lenny as in of mice men, he, he suffocates her in this case. He then uh, cuts off her, he dismembered, no, he cuts off her head and, and shoves her body in a stove and then, and, and the head as well. And so it just quickly got out of control from there and lost a lot of uh, empathy for me, I'm afraid. So the criticism really starts from there. I, well, perhaps before is that, Bigger Thomas, while we may be seeing his perspective, his point of view, unfortunately, he lives up to every terrible stereotype 
that people have, and probably just white people, that people have about black people and black men in particular. I don't really need to go into what those stereotypes are, but he falls into every one of them. Not I, not every, but it is just bad. Like, what sort of character are you creating here? And also, uh, another reason why I didn't like him is he reminded me of the lead character in Crime and Punishment. Basically, it was just another version of Crime and Punishment. And I did not like that either, where this guy was like so desperate he had to murder in order to get the money. And because bigger, like after the murder, he decides he's going to do a whole ransom sort of thing and he gets himself into more trouble. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I, you know, I gave it a three out of five. I don't think I would recommend it, but I think it has an interesting place in history for sure. I then read, this seems wrong that I read these. I don't know about that. Okay. The Hunger Games and Philosophy, a a Critique of Pure Treason um, by several authors, which I borrowed from one of my friends. Um, So several essays uh, talking about different aspects of the Hunger Games. From Scratch, a memoir of Love, Sicily, and Finding Home by Tembi Locke. Another memoir about a woman who uh, lost her husband and uh, going through their history and their time together. And race is an issue in that one just because she is black and he is an Italian. So that uh, pops up as well. The Fire Next Time by James Baldwin, which I recommend. Just two essays really in there and one's more of a letter. Isola Volume 2 by Brendan Fletcher and Carl Kershaw. So that was, I feel like Isola is not coming back. I don't know. It's been delayed. Just like Motor Crush has like stopped too. But I enjoyed that. Pearl Volume 2 by Brian Michael Bendis. I enjoy that. And the art is amazing. Who does the art? Let me check this out just so I can give proper credit where credit is due. Uh, Michael Gatos. Um, just really interesting about the the tattoo artist that is also part of the Yakuza. The Catcher in the Rye by J.D. Salinger, which is the third time that I'm reading it. Uh, You can check out February's episode of Required Reading for that. The Polysyllabic Spree by Nick Hornby was one of the interlibrary loans. Um, That was a memoir. Him, it was funny because it was Hornby reading books each month and writing about his experience and reading those. And some of the books uh, that he was talking about, I had also read. And then Nervous System or Losing My Mind in Literature by Jan Lars Jensen. And I really like this, another interlibrary loan, though I was caught off guard. So I thought it was a memoir, which I found it interesting. Like I had two back-to-back interlibrary loans that were about reading books. I thought it was a memoir. And then the first chapter, which was only about three pages, was so bizarre that I thought, wait a minute, maybe this is fiction. And then actually, no, it's a memoir and it's of his time in a psychiatric ward. Uh, He had a breakdown. Well, he doesn't like to call it a nervous breakdown, but lots of things came together and uh, it was all surrounding the publishing of his book. And, And it's almost... Uh, some of these things like that he was thinking about and going through is almost, <sighs> I don't want to sound, dis- but it's just like, you can't imagine. It's almost like absurd. Like, how could this possibly be? Which is why I like it. And, and I think it's, it'd be a, a good book. And this is the third time I'm talking about mental illness, but this is a good book to, I think, look at for people trying to understand it. Just that you, you can't, you know, it's hard to understand. And these people, 
there are certain people that are undergoing or experiencing things that we are not. And uh, you can't just like dispose of them, uh, but you have to better understand what they're going through. So it's like some of the stuff was just, whoa, man, what's going on? There's no one out there trying to assassinate you, but he was living that. And so I think that's something that we have to to reach out and, and try to better understand. So I enjoyed that as well. And he is better. He's better. I don't know what he's currently doing. I think currently he is, um, well, besides writing that memoir, uh, he writes periodicals and things. I just dropped that off for um, at the library, so I no longer have it. But there you go. Those are whew, all the books I read this particular month. I have an audio book that I'm trying to finish up that's also have ha- race in the center. And then I'm reading something about bridging the gap between white women and black women. And then I just got out a stamp from the beginning by Ibram X. Kendi. So for some reason, which I guess is good, but it just like organically happened. Uh, I've been reading lots of things about race or black stories, which is good. But that's what I was trying to, the queer history. And then hopefully I can find, I don't know, some other stuff like things about maybe Latinx people or something so I can spread the wealth around. So this is it. This is, I feel like this went on longer and I apologize. That synopsis, I think was probably the low point of this episode, (laughs) but I started and I thought I might as well just finish it. But as I was going, I was catching grammar spelling issues and just trying to figure out what the person was saying. So I do apologize about that, but we made it through and hopefully you enjoyed the rest of that coverage. Remember, you can send any questions or comments to BatgirlTheOracle at gmail.com. Remember, I want to know, is Batman manipulative? Does Jason want a chance for himself or Babs? Should people who share trauma be romantically involved? And is there anything deeper in saying it hurts to laugh coming from the Joker? So those are the four questions I think I put forth. I don't think I did anything in the, in the first half. You can find the show on Google Play and Stitcher and Amazon, like the show on Facebook, or follow it on Twitter at Backroll the Oracle, and follow it on YouTube, Backroll the Oracle, the Barbara Graham Podcast, no longer all one word. I fixed that. Wasn't sure I could, but I did. So you can, of course, watch this unedited video. Follow the Batman Universe on Facebook and Twitter as well and support the Batman Universe by subscribing to Patreon. Once again, thanks to Mile High Comics for sponsoring Backroll the Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. And until next time, ooh, next time. So next month, I will be doing the Shipper Special number 10 with Donovan. And we're going to be doing DC Comics Couples. I should say DC Comics romances because I told him that I'm okay with them if they were never an official couple, but you have to give reasons and it needs to, these, any, any of the romances you choose have to have some sort of personal effect or impact on you. And then later in the month, I'll be doing, like I said, I'll do the Batman stuff and then last stories of the DC universe. And then for the vintage Batman Orpheus Rises. And I have some people that I want to come on for Orpheus, but they're hard to get for some reason. So if I don't have them, I'll let you know, and I'll have somebody else on to talk to me about that. So we shall see. But until next time, fly on, Babs lovers. Just plain Barbara Gordon, masquerading for a lark as she rides into the night on her special Batgirl cycle. Who knows? Is the dynamic duo destined to become the triumphant trio? Only time will tell us more about this dazzling dare doll, 
love a happy ending, don't you?